Now I have the great pleasure of introducing tonight's moderator, Ms. Catherine Bowers. Catherine Bowers is the co-author of Zubiquity, a New York Times and Los Angeles Times best-selling book that looks at human health from a veterinary perspective. She has worked as a staff editor at the Atlantic Monthly, a news writer for CNN International, and an assistant press attache at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and has taught writing at UCLA. If that wasn't enough, most importantly, I am so proud to announce that Catherine is the newest addition to Sokolo's editorial staff. Please give a very warm welcome to Catherine Bowers. Thank you. Thank you, Dulce, and thank all of you for coming out to our city's beautiful new Grand Park. This is really the perfect place to be talking about wild Los Angeles. We have this twilight about to darken summer sky as our backdrop. We can feel the fresh air on our skin. Hopefully it won't be too fresh um, as we sit here and getting um, blown by the wind. Um, and we're surrounded by this stage set of skyscrapers and we might even have a helicopter or two go over while we're talking. This blend of built and wild, of human and non-human, seems to me to be quintessentially Los Angeles. Most of you probably got here tonight on a freeway, or maybe you walked or cycled on a paved city street or sidewalk. But as you know, not all of Los Angeles is a concrete jungle. From where we sit right now, we are five or six miles... Closer? <laughs> five or six miles from Griffith Park which is the nation's largest municipal park at 4,000 acres, smack dab in the middle of where we work, live, and play. We're bordered by mountain ranges, by an ocean, and our neighborhoods are cut through by canyons and a river. Uh, in fact, scientists have called Los Angeles a biodiversity hotspot. Tonight we're going to be talking about what that means, what animals are out there, where they came from, what they're doing in our backyards and parks, and how we should or maybe shouldn't interact with them. Along the way, we'll talk about some of our favorite L.A. animals and why some become celebrities and why they don't and when that's good and when that's not so good. I have one assignment for all of you to be thinking about as we're having this discussion. Um, think about whether there is a single animal that symbolizes our city to you. If you were to name the official animal of Los Angeles, what might that animal be? We have a fantastic panel of guides to help us explore this terrain. And please hold your applause until I've introduced all three of them. First, we have Beth Pratt. Beth is California Director for the National Wildlife Federation. She's been in environmental leadership roles for over 20 years and in two of the country's largest national parks, Yosemite and Yellowstone. I'm sure you've heard of them. She's also author of an upcoming book, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, Wildlife in Today's California. Leela Higgins here at the end, has been the National History Museum of Los Angeles. Um, she's been there since 2008. She oversees the museum's citizen science and live animal programs and is also the lead educator of the museum's newest indoor-outdoor exhibit, which is focused on getting the public participating in urban biodiversity research. Gregory Randall is the City of Los Angeles Animal Services Wildlife Specialist. He has rescued a range of animals from dogs and reptiles to coyotes, mountain lions, and aquatic mammals like sea lions and seals. He's responsible for ending the city's policy on trapping and killing wildlife and has instead focused his work on helping the public learn how to be prepared for encounters with wildlife. So please join me in welcoming them tonight. Okay, 
Leela, Greg, and Beth. Let's start with a catalog of Los Angeles animals, a sort of bestiary of what we've got out there. Who, who's out there? What have we got? Well, I can start by saying we've got quite a lot of different types of animals here. We've had everything from bears, mountain lions, coyotes, possums, raccoons, skunks, uh, squirrels. We've had the occasional badger. Mm -hmm. And on our borders by the ocean, we've seals and sea lions and aquatic birds. And we've got our share of owls and hawks and uh -huh. different types of birds of prey. Leela, what else do we have? Um, I'm definitely more invertebrate focused. And so I really love the dragonflies and damselflies little tiny snails that we have living here, um, butterflies, centipedes, found some really cool centipedes that live around in the mountains. Uh huh. Well, I'll put in a plug for the reptiles and amphibians. You have plenty <laughs> of uh, beautiful frogs like the red-legged and uh, the toads. I mean, you can see, especially the Pacific chorus frog, you're likely to see that all around LA. So I'll put a plug in for them. <laughs> is, is there anything in particular that might be in Grand Park at this moment? Can you think of something that might be? Here? I'm pretty sure there's going to be some uh, Argentine ants. There's a lot of irrigation here. Uh -huh. I doubt there's any harvester ants. They're more up in the mountains. Um, there's probably hundreds and thousands of tiny little insects all around us right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we might have the occasional uh, songbird, uh, sometimes the occasional bat. Uh -huh. Of course, a variety of rats and mice, and uh, you know, the occasional opossum might be down here. Interesting. So keep your eyes open, everyone. Eyes and ears open. Um, I would love to hear from each of you the story of a memorable experience you've had encountering Los Angeles wildlife. Leela, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I'm definitely going to stay with the invertebrate focus. <laughs> um, that will be a theme here tonight. Uh, I was in the new nature gardens at the museum, which uh, has been planted for about a year and a half now. And I've been going out every day uh, or so just seeing what wildlife was in the, the garden. I knew there were certain things that I was going to expect. I knew we had a pond. I knew the dragonflies were going to show up. And the, all these butterflies were showing up because we were planting their host plants. And then one day I was out walking along and I saw a little tiny snail on the wall. And I thought, that snail looks really different than any other snail. First it was smaller, it was flatter. And so I had a little plastic vial in my pocket and I stuck it in the vial and took it up to the malacologist in the museum and handed it to him. I was like, oh, I've never seen a snail like this. And um, Dr. Lindsey Groves took it out of my hand and he got this huge smile on his face. And I get really excited <laughs> about nature. So I'm like, what, what, what? Tell me what's going on. And he said, go and look under my microscope. And I look under his microscope and the exact same species of snail is under his microscope. I'm like, okay, tell me the story about it because this is going to be something interesting. And apparently... The snail I had found was the first record of this snail ever being in Los Angeles. It's the southern flat wow. coil snail, wow. Polygyra cereolus, and um, he had a snail under his microscope that was from, I think it was San Diego or Riverside County, which was the first record uh, for those counties too. And so he wrote it up and apparently it's now a species that's kind of widespread all over the southern uh, United States. And it's even been introduced into the Middle East and du Dubai and places. Is there anything distinctive about its shell that uh, the rest of us might recognize it if we ever came across it? So the name is flat coil snail and it's very, it's kind of like a little disc as opposed to the garden snails that we hmm. see that kind of uh, are very spherical. This is much more flattened disc shape. Interesting. And they're only about that big. What is cool. that, a centimeter? Cool. Greg, what about you? I'm sure you have hundreds, if not thousands, of stories. Uh, well, I will go to a specific experience that I had up in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, we had a 
group of people that were feeding coyotes intentionally up there. Mm. And one gentleman in particular, in his 80s, to his neighbor's dismay, was feeding a coyote that turned from one coyote to six. And um, You mean because it bred? Well, no, because it brought his friends I around. See. I see. <laughs> so, and what was he feeding them? Uh, well, that's what I had yet to find out. Apparently it was taking place at six o'clock in the morning, and the person, the neighbor next door, invited me to stake out the location from his yard. <laughs> Binoculars. So, um, <laughs> I got into the yard and uh, about 5.30 to be there before the coyotes and almost on the dot at 6 o'clock, I see the coyotes approach uh, this little platform and next to the platform there was what looked like a motion sensor and the coyotes, I could have reached out and touched them and they could care less that I was there. Mm -hmm. They were all just looking up at the balcony above, two stories up, and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I see this Dumb waiter lowering down, <laughs> land perfectly in place with a rope with plates of food, and the coyotes just started eating the food. And I thought, okay, this isn't good. Uh, we have a law against feeding predatory mammals in LA. So I got up, I went up to the front of the property just in time to see the gentleman. He was putting peanuts in the planter, uh, I guess for squirrels, I assume. Then he went back in the house. A whole and, menagerie going on. Yeah. Here. When I got to the front door, I was about to knock, I felt something tug on my pant leg, and I looked down and there's the fattest squirrel I'd ever seen in my life sitting on my shoe, holding on to my pants with one paw. And then he opens the door and he says, first thing to me, how did you know? And I'm like, well, you know, squirrel. <laughs> it's the international symbol for give me a peanut. Right? Yeah, and I, so I asked him, I said, why are you uh, feeding the coyotes? And he said, well, so they won't kill my cats. Which is a misnomer. Um, anyway, at the time that we didn't have the law, wasn't very strong, then it was only an infraction, but it's now a misdemeanor that carries about a $1,000 fine and mm -hmm. a possible six months in jail. But as I'm standing there talking to him, trying to explain how if he moved out, these coyotes have been created dependence on coming to his place, and they would keep coming back and cause problems for the neighbors. A woman, a woman walking up the street says, oh, don't give that man a ticket. He's so nice. He feeds all the wildlife in the neighborhood. Didn't so, help him at all. So it sounds like there's a lot of perspectives on this kind of feeding behavior. There absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. Beth, how about you? So, you know, for me, L.A. has been about discovery because I don't live in L.A. And I've worked in uh, Yellowstone for a few years. So you can imagine the wildlife encounters I had there. And currently I live outside Yosemite National Park where I worked for a decade. But I'm down here about three or four times a month. And it's just been wonderful discovering what's here. I am just inspired by the urban wildlife story in L.A., and it, it actually did start by a, a, one of your biggest in, um, residents, which is P-22. How many of you know that you have a mountain lion <laughs> living in your mist in Griffith Park? Uh, and I came down, and um, Jeff, a biologist with the National Park Service, and Erin, uh, who works with USGS on connectivity, uh, we went into Griffith Park because I wanted to hear about the story about the lion. And uh, it was amazing. I didn't get to see him, but this was just such an incredible wildlife encounter to stand near the statue of James Dean and, uh, you know, <laughs> see the observatory and, and know that there was a mountain lion wandering around. I was out there with, and Jeff had his radio tracker out, and we had people coming up to us, what the heck is that? And, you know, we'd say, well, you know, it's a P-22, we're looking for the mountain lion. And nobody's reaction was fear. Hmm. Even the woman who had two little corgi dogs, which, you know, could be prey, uh, they were adorable, but uh, everybody was just expressing a sense of wonder that this animal was here. And for me, walking around and knowing his presence was there was, uh, to date, one of the best, in, you know, sort of non-encounters I've had 
uh, in LA. But there's a lot here, and as they say, you know, there's so much to see just because it's a city. And I think what I'd love to do uh, through my work is dispel the myth that LA is just about pollution and big buildings and traffic. It's mm. about wildlife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's sometimes that reputation that we carry for being so completely urban, but as we as we know, we're much more interwoven with what's going on in nature. Um, so we have a snail, coyotes and a squirrel, and a mountain lion. Um, I'm wondering, if, first of all, if those are all anim uh, native species? They're native to this area? The southern flat coil is not. Was not, okay. Um, so we've imported so many natural things to this area over probably centuries. Uh, the palm trees that we see are not native. Eucalyptus trees are not native. Um, what are the animals that are non-native that we now kind of consider part of our landscape, and what has their effect been on, on our natural community? I'll start with one that... Um I think the bullfrog is one, uh, you know, again, for one of my favorite animals, the frog, um, that it, most people think are native and most people love having in their yards. And believe me, I love bullfrogs. I grew up in Massachusetts, um, but they are not native. And they actually will destroy the native frogs like the red-legged or the Pacific chorus frogs because they eat them. They actually even mm. eat small birds. Mm. So they've become a, not just in L.A., but um, I think all across, you know, the the west part of the native landscape but are not and, and it comes with consequences mm -hmm. uh, and it comes with sort of a, a, a you know a conflict do you kill a frog that is now you know become part of the landscape to save the native species that's a loaded question which you know with a lot of animal species there uh, that's something that is uh, tough to resolve sometimes yeah Greg at what point does an animal that's non-native become native well, that's, that's actually a debate that's been going on for a long time. We have um, the red fox is a non-native species to this area, mm -hmm. and they are all over the place. Um, they do prey upon our, our native fox, the gray fox. Mm -hmm. um, I do environmental impact studies in the city for when they're doing new construction in hillside communities, but I had been tasked with a piece of property that the airport purchased, which was... Um, had buildings on it before. When they removed the buildings, it remained a vacant lot for years, and eventually plants grew and uh, butterflies, and it formed a small swamp. And I got called by somebody a year after I did the environmental impact study that's saying that uh, there are now foxes there a year later. So I go back down to the location, what was previously just a dirt pile, had completely uh, taken over by these foxes. There were 13 foxes wow. living there with dens, and they were they came right up where I was, and they were surviving very well in there. And I had to rescind my previous recommendation that they could go ahead and, and use this property because even though the fox is non-native, if they're going to remove it, it has to be done in a humane fashion. Uh -huh. uh, a fish and game doesn't consider the fox, the red fox, to be uh, an animal that's supposed to be here. Is um, it considered then an invasive species yes, it is definitely in need considered, of removal? That's usually how they treat it. Mm. Um, but they are so prevalent everywhere you, you go now that... Um, you know, there is an ongoing debate as to what to do, whether to consider... I mean, they've been here for so long, they were brought in for canned hunts many, many years ago because people from England, that's the fox that they hunt, and that's something that people wanted to do here, but it gets out of control. Mm -hmm. People lose track of the animals, and they find each other and breed, and now they're popping up everywhere. And then, fortunately, they do create a lot of damage for some of our urban species of animals. Mm -hmm. And the urban wildlife will always take precedence over the animal that's an invasive species. And I, I, it's Wait, a case by case. What do you mean case. by that? They'll take, oh, in your... If, in for example, the, a, a burrowing owl 
you know, over in the, the west area of Los Angeles, there's some areas there where that is a habitat, and the red foxes are showing up in there and creating some problems. So the red foxes are usually removed by the Department of Fish and Game, and it becomes an issue. So the law and compassion um, f goes for... The native species. No, Correct. The, the, the law goes toward the native species, but compassion is for all the animals. Correct. Okay. Okay. Leela, do you have a um, sort of an iconic story of some animals that were brought here and released and have influenced our native landscape? So I did say I was going to be invertebrate focused, but not on this story. <laughs> I'm desperately trying to get you to talk about mammals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the eastern fox squirrel, which is a squirrel that we see all the time. We see them around the museum on a daily basis. They're those grayish brown they're the, ones? They're the little red, kind of uh, brownish red squirrels. Uh -huh. uh, our native squirrel is the gray squirrel, and so they're, they're both uh, tree squirrels that we're talking about here. And the eastern fox squirrel, the introduction story, uh, a lot of times you can't really tell how many times or where um, specific species were introduced. It, it happened, you know, again, many times. But the eastern fox squirrel, we kind of know uh, the first time it was introduced, was at the Veterans Hospital over on Sawtell. And uh, the Civil War veterans that were at the hospital had Eastern Fox Squirrels as pets. And some people say, which this might be apocryphal, but I love apocryphal stories, that they might have been used for squirrel stew. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, they were being but fed th table Their presence scraps. there was not apocryphal. No, okay. their presence there was not apocryphal. Um, and they, at any rate, they were being fed table scraps. And um, once the people in charge of the Veterans Hospital got wind of this, they said, this is misappropriation of government-issued food. They, those squirrels must be released now. And so the squirrels were released. And there may have been other introduction um, events that happened, but that one we, we know about as being one of the first. And they have spread all over um, the area. And they're kind of getting to where I live, out towards Claremont and Upland area right now. And so there's a lot of work that um, researchers at our museum, some of who are in the audience now, are we're looking at doing some citizen science with the squirrels, uh, looking at the impacts of the red eastern fox squirrel on the gray squirrels that are native and also on our ground squirrels. And that's so interesting because you have so much data. If it goes all the way back to Civil War veterans... Um, clearly, it, you've been looking at this for a long time. Yeah, our mammalogist uh, was was the one who gave us, uh, you know, kind of helped tell the story. And this this is one of the stories that is told in our new Nature Lab exhibit at the museum. Excellent, excellent. So the idea of this animal spreading throughout the city brings up something else I've been thinking about, which is the idea of boundaries in our city. Um, I think something that defines Los Angeles is that our boundaries are a bit more permeable. There's some cities where the humans live over here and the animals are over here. And in a way, our national parks are a bit the same way. Um, but our spaces are much more interwoven here in Los Angeles. So I was wondering if you guys could think for a second about how we define a wild space. First of all, is there a professional definition in your fields about what's wild and what isn't? For example, an uh, abandoned lot between two buildings, is that wild or is it not? Um, and then also, if you have a personal definition that's the same or somewhat different from that professional definition. Yeah, you know, having worked in public lands a lot, I mean, I think we, we do tend to think of wildlife being in these wild places that are legally defined, like a national park or a national forest. But I actually would like to challenge that. Uh, what is a wild space? I actually think anything can be a wild space. Someone's apartment balcony can be a wild space. Mm. Um, one of the things the National Wildlife Federation does, and why the answer to this talk for me is a resounding yes, uh, <laughs> 
people do care about wild animals in LA. We have a certified wildlife habitat program where people can say that they will garden and do things for wildlife in their yard, schoolyard, apartment balcony, business, you name it. And we have uh, almost 2,000 in L just in L.A. alone. There's 10,000 in the state. So what the, kinds of things do they have to do? So what you have to do is you have to prove that you are providing water, um, food, you know, obviously not food for coyotes, but food for <laughs> songbirds or, 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 you know, we don't want, you know, um, mountain lions coming in for fresh meat, but <laughs> natural uh, sources yeah. of yes. food, natural sources of food. So native plants, we uh, definitely encourage shelter. Uh, like I, you know, I don't live in LA, but when I do talks down here, I encourage like a, a water source for a frog pond um, and places to raise their young. And again, you can do this on an apartment balcony or even a window, you could do a hanging garden. So uh, there's a great essay, um, 13 Ways of Seeing Nature in LA by Jen, Jenny Price. If you haven't mm -hmm. read it, it, it does challenge you to think about what a wild space is. And I would throw out that we do have these legal definitions, which you know people like Greg Need and people like Park Service and USGS and, and, and all these places need to help manage. But on the other hand, opening our eyes to what can be a wild space, I think is, is how this sort of urban wildlife uh, intersection is going to be successful. Um, Jenny Price um, did a lot of work on the Los Angeles River and really raised the profile of the river and um, its its perception as a place for for species, other species, non-human species to thrive. Right? The, the last thing I'll add there, um, you know, artificial buildings can mock nature, and I think that's sort of where we're at if wildlife's going to thrive in this this brave new world. Uh, you know, it's not L.A., but I was in San Jose where the city. Hall building looks like Yosemite Valley, and indeed, you know, El Capitan, they have nesting peregrines. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, our, we, we tend to think of, you know, wild places as being these beautiful paradise-like spaces, but indeed they can be a, a sidewalk, um, you know, with not much green space that, you know, has, has something that supports wildlife. That's kind of interesting because it includes us as human beings a little bit more in the definition. Well, for, for me, uh, the wildlife space is defined by what's in the imagination of the beholder of the, the area. Um, the entire state of California is wildlife habitat with homes in it. You have animal... It really is. <laughs> Maybe you should repeat that. Yeah, wildlife <laughs> habitat with homes in it. Um, basically, if you are a wild animal, and people believe that wild animals a lot of times should only live in the hills or the mountains, which is a misnomer, prior to any homes being built, wildlife covered the entire area. Of course, that same wildlife is not here anymore, but generationally they are. Uh, when these animals are up in a mountainous area that may have been recently burned out by fire, they're looking down upon homes with greenery, lush vegetation, and we provide by default a number of the things that the animals want to eat. Mm -hmm. I mean, our backyard and kitchen cupboard is what, you know, their food source is in a our lot of cases. beautiful lawns. Right. Like We're their McDonald's. <laughs> you know, why hunt for food when you can go into someone's backyard and find this yard has cat food, this one has a fruit tree with fallen fruit, this one has a compost pile, wooden brush pile with rodents, water in a pool or a pond or a fountain. They can find everything they need right at our properties. And over the many years that L.A. has been here or for the entire, you know, state, these animals have thrived very well in finding things that we have in our home. So there really is no boundary. They look, you know, for what our boundary is to us is our wall. But for these animals, it's not a boundary. It's something to be overcome. And they're going to find so many different things to survive upon here. They really don't need to hunt because we are providing these things in our yards for them. And what we do now is we encourage people to make changes through education that if they don't want to see the wildlife showing up in their home, 
and crossing that boundary, remove the attraction sources. They can't, obviously, you're not going to remove your swimming pool. You know, but remove that fallen fruit mm-hmm. and clear up that brush pile, wood pile, have a closed composter, you know, clear, clear away all of the dense vegetation that's going to be attracting the animals. And it's not going to be perfect, but you are going to see a reduction in the animals foraging on private property. Mm-hmm. And then they will do what they're supposed to do, which is keep our rodent populations in check. Mm-hmm. That's their mm-hmm. job. So this is a related question, and Leela, maybe you can think about this for a moment. Um, How much is our urbanization affecting the habitats of our wild neighbors? We often hear a lot about this um, as the borders of our developments head farther and farther out, that it's really having an impact on our wild neighbors. Um, Absolutely. And the, the new exhibit that we just worked on, Nature Lab, talks about both some of the positive and the negative impacts. So... For instance, we were talking about downtown L.A. and what wildlife could be here. Um, Just around the corner from here, one of the coolest wildlife spectacles that I've probably ever seen in a city uh, was Vox's Swifts circling into the Chester building um, into a a chimney shaft. Those are birds. Those are birds, yeah. Vox's Swifts, little tiny birds. um, And they come down. um, They're here in in the fall and the spring on their migratory route. And they hang out in L.A. for a little bit on, you know, as a stopgap, you know, a little vacation um, from their long journey. And they're all day eating insects on the wing um, over by the river and around other places adjacent to downtown. And then at night they need to roost. And so they have found that uh, these man-made structures like this chimney uh, work really well for roosting in. And you can see the night that we were out there, we filmed it and we took photos and we estimated, well, I didn't, but our ornithologist, Kimball Garrett, estimated that there was about 6,200 of these birds and they spiral into the chimney. Yeah. And in other cities around um, North America, this is something that people come out to see. So it's this crazy wildlife spectacle, kind of like bats emerging from caves or under bridges. And so... That day that we were there, there was only four of us on the roof of the parking garage. And I was like, why don't we have thousands of people up here watching this spectacle? Because it is a sight to behold. So that sounds like sort of a, a positive interaction, actually. Yes. Are there, um, are there many negative results of this? Um, when, when the boundaries either get so blurred or they come up in... Uh, so I have another one. And it's okay. invertebrate. And I'm going to switch back to my invertebrate side now. <laughs> Um, Only if you promise another mammal later. (laughs) I'll try. Um, So there's these large, giant, they're called giant flower-loving flies. And um, historically, they have been in in southern Los Angeles in the coastal sand dunes. And you may have heard of the Delhi sands fly, the first fly to be put on the federal endangered species list. Um, this, they're, they're the same fly, they're the two, two of the same species, but they're subspecies of each other. So this fly was thought to be extinct in Los Angeles. Um, the last record had been in 1965, and so the scientists thought that it was extinct. And this was because of human development and encroaching on their habitat, which is the coastal sand dunes. But uh, in 2001, some scientists were out um, looking in the sand dunes down in Palos Verdes, and they found a small population. So this fly, uh, this subspecies, is still here, very small area, um, but most of its habitat has been completely um, deg- degraded to mm-hmm. the point that they, they can't survive. Mm-hmm. Beth, do you have any thoughts on, on the collision between human societies and animal societies? Yeah, I... You know, you see this. I get asked a lot uh, when I do talks, you know, how, how do you, um, I don't know if, co- I know Greg doesn't like the word coexist, but it's what I use. How do you coexist 
without you know crossing those boundaries. And I think there are ways where obviously feeding. Um, when you do feed, uh, especially these these larger predators, you do run into trouble. And I think coyotes is a big issue here in Southern California. Coyotes are amazing adapters, as, as Greg can tell you. And when that line gets crossed, you do get conflicts with people and you get conflicts with pets. And so I think it is about being responsible and recognizing that, for me at least, and I know everybody's got a different answer, the risk is acceptable. I mean, when I lived in Yellowstone, we had grizzly bears that could tear your head off with, with you know, one swipe of the paw. But it was acceptable to, to just be enthralled and, and, and experience the wonder of wildlife. And for most people I talk to in L.A., the risk, which is very minimal here. I mean, I think, what did you say, Greg? You, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than bit by a coyote. or And, and you know, you're probably never going to see P-22, but just knowing he's here. Most people accept that risk and know that you're more likely, much more likely, to get in a car accident on the 405 than have one of these negative encounters. But being respectful and recognizing that it is wonderful to see wildlife, but they are wildlife. They are wild. Uh, Yosemite, the big joke is the only animal that's ever killed a person is a deer, not a bear or a mountain lion or a bobcat. It's your, your deer. So keeping your distance, but creating a welcoming space for wildlife because they don't have a lot of places to go. I would like us all to uh, leave this evening with some practical knowledge of what to do if we actually do encounter a coyote or a mountain lion or some other predator. Um, close to us. So, Greg, I think you're probably an excellent person to, uh, to educate us on that. What, what do you think? Well, most, with the exception of a skunk, because we all know what you do when Yeah, I don't really want to encounter a skunk so much either. Uh, but, you know, if you come across a situation where you have a coyote in close proximity to you, 20, 50 feet, something like that, you want to make yourself peer bigger, face the animal, wave your arms, stomp your feet. If you have something with you, like a jacket, take it off and wave it around over your head. That goes for coyotes. Yes, and make them make very frightening noises. Completely opposite for a domestic dog where you make like a tree. With a coyote, you want to make very large, overt movements. Um, raccoon is the same thing. Same thing with a mountain lion or something like that. But it's, you know, if you scare an opossum, it just usually sits there. So it's kind of a waste <laughs> of time. They really don't know what to do with that except to give you this big open mouth and <laughs> try and look menacing when it really doesn't mean anything. Could they hurt you? Yeah, there well, if you walk up and put your hand right in the opossum's mouth, yes. Okay. <laughs> we don't have opossums attacking people, fortunately. And Note to self, don't you know, put hand Most in of the time, these animals want nothing to do with us except for the food that we have. They're not looking. We're not food to them, um, but they do know that we have food. And the big problem that we have is where that boundary line is crossed and what, kind of what you were talking about. They sometimes will enter in through a pet door because they know a pet goes in there and they find that there's pet food inside and they'll keep coming back for that. So there is a boundary, but we do recommend that when people see these animals, even if they're not really doing anything to frighten them away, I steal a line from the movies Monsters, Inc. We scare because we care. <laughs> you want to send them a message saying, you know, keep your distance. We know you're going to be in the area doing your job, keeping our rodent population down, but we don't want to pet you. Just scare them off. And there are a variety of things that you can find probably similar online with our department or any other animal control agency that recommend deterring animals. Okay. Um, Beth and Leela, what would be your thoughts on how to uh, interact with wild animals in a safe and non-destructive way if that's something that someone wants to do? And I'm not saying go up to a possum, put your hand in their mouth. But um, for those of us who do want to have, um, have a relationship with the animals around us, what, what do you think? 
Well, for me, especially, you know, if we're not talking predators, you know, songbirds, amphibians. I mean, those are, you know, invertebrates. I don't want to don't want to miss out. Snails. Uh, you know, these are <laughs> snails are very easy to have a safe relationship with. So <laughs> um, t to me, it is about, uh, you know, start at your home. I mean, you know, create a, a native garden. I mean, it is so easy to do. And build it, and they will come. Uh, uh, you know, where I live up in Yosemite, I, I really don't need to do much. But I'll tell you, I put a, a little frog pond in, and it just transformed the yard. So, so I think, you know, focus on um, creating a, a, a space in your home where you can interact with the animals that aren't going to, you know, um, bite, <laughs> like snails. Um, but, but if you do see... And if you are lucky enough to see something like a coyote or a mountain lion, follow Greg's advice. He's got some, uh, a, a great blog and some, um, some wonderful tips that he's written online for if you do see a coyote. Keep your distance. Uh, to me, that there's an interesting case you can read about that I've been covering. Again, sorry, it's not in L.A., although Facebook is here everywhere. Uh, the Facebook campus, they have some gray fox, foxes living on campus. And to me, this is the success story where people are keeping their distance, but the foxes... Are, are working out a habitat in a very urban office park. You know, Facebook has 57 acres. So Have any of you seen the Facebook foxes? If you're not following it... Uh, I was a little yeah. afraid to Google it at first, but it's actually... Um, they're real foxes. It is a remarkable story. You have 2,500 <laughs> hackers who usually don't care about wildlife are supporting this fox population that is uh, from a wildlife corridor in an urban area. So you can do the same here. You know, follow Greg's advice, keep your distance, but, but you know, celebrate those sightings that you get and do what you can in your yard or schoolyard for wildlife because it does make a difference. They are being pushed in every direction between climate change, pollution, habitat loss. So putting a, a, a frog pond or, a, you know, native plants in your yard, you'd be amazed how much difference that makes for them. Leela, this next question is for you. Do you have something quick to say on, on this? I was just going to say, citizen science is a great way to have a positive interaction with wildlife, taking pictures with your phone. You don't have to get too close, whether it's a mammal or an insect. And the museum has an L.A. nature map, and we are encouraging people to send in pictures of the wildlife that they see around the city, plants and animals, and so we can get a better sense of what actually lives here. And so what is, what is citizen science? How citizen science is um, getting the people who are not uh, professionally trained biologists or scientists involved in real research. And so we have a number of projects at the museum, like uh, the Lost Ladybug Project, Rascals, which is reptiles and amphibians of Southern California. Um, our herpetologist is really interested in getting a good sense of what reptiles and amphibians live around um, the area, and so we've been looking um, through the archives of the iNaturalist, which is the program that runs our uh, LA Nature Map, and we found pictures that people have submitted of king snakes and gopher snakes, like right along the LA River um, on one of the bike paths down there, and we get really excited when we see that because it's in a very urban area, and we wouldn't have known about it, our herpetologists wouldn't have known about it, but because someone submitted these pictures, we can then go and look at that site and see oh, look, there's an adjacent wild area and what other snakes might be living there. Cool. So all of you can go participate in those on the, uh, the, science, the uh, museum website. Yeah. Catherine, can I call out, I think, one of the best examples we have in L.A. of living with wildlife, which yeah. Bradley Rumble, would you and your students stand up? We have the, yeah. the Leo Politi School here, which <laughs> if you don't know what these guys are doing for wildlife. Oh, you have to explain it. Tell yeah, us. Yeah, uh, they transformed their uh, schoolyard about 5,000 feet, Bradley, into a, a wildlife habitat. And I can guarantee all of uh, the wonderful students who came tonight can tell you what birds are flying overhead. They 
participate in Christmas bird counts. And do to you, me, yeah. Do you have a website also where people can explore what you're doing? LAAudubon.org. Yeah. And if you, uh, I'm sure they'll give you a tour of the school. I was at the Conservation Art Awards uh, this past year with Ranger Rick, and uh, it was just so inspirational what Bradley and his students are doing. So I think a round of applause for these guys. Yay. Uh, so our evening is going much quicker than I expected. I do want to pause for a, a, a literary interlude. Um, I wrote a poem. No, I didn't. It's actually a poem I found in the New Yorker. Um, it's by Elizabeth Bradfield, who teaches at Brandeis and the University of Alaska at Anchorage. It's called We All Want to See a Mammal. We all want to see a mammal. Snowshoe and snowshoe hares and squirrels don't count. Voles don't count. Something preferably that could do us harm. There's a long list. Bear, moose, wolf, wolverine, even porcupine would do. The quills, the yellowed teeth and long claws. Beautiful here. Peaks and avens, melt water running its braided course. But we want to see a mammal. Our days, our lives incomplete without a mammal. The gaze of something unafraid that we're afraid of meeting ours before it runs off. Linnaeus was called indecent when he named them. Plenty of other commonalities. Hair, live young, a proclivity to plot. But no, mammal, mama, breasted and nippled, and warm, warm, warm. Uh, so, Leela, <laughs> you're an entomologist, and your exhibit that you put together at the Natural History Museum takes a very careful look at the, the region's insects and other invertebrates. Um, but Bradfield's poem points out a dirty little secret that most wildlife educators know, and that's that we tend to favor scary or adorable creatures, which I think your term of art is charismatic megafauna. So, Leela, make the case for uncharismatic microfauna. Oh, they're charismatic microphone out there, let me tell you. Have you ever seen a jumping spider's face up close? They are so cool. They have these massive, huge eyes. And if they, we have, you can go and do this at the Natural History Museum, funnily enough. Um, we have a screen that rotates through all these different photographs of wildlife that's been seen in Los Angeles. And we have some amazing shots of jumping spiders up close. And you can see their eyes. They have such good eyesight they see us and so they can run away from us, they can jump away from us and um, there's nothing for it but to call them cute. They're kind of furry. <laughs> um, I had a, uh, a lifelong uh, desire to get insects on a website called Cute Overload. It's all these beautiful, cute little bunnies, and they were like all these huge eyes on dogs, and they're just looking so cute. And I was like, I'm gonna get an insect on there. And one day I had a, um, an egg case on my desk of a praying mantis, and I didn't realize it was gonna hatch. And then it got into work on Monday, and it hatched, and I just find all these tiny little praying mantid babies this big, so cute, Aww. all over the whole desk. <laughs> and one of them landed and ended up on the end of my number two pencil. And I took a picture. You have a picture on your blog. I have a picture on the blog, and it got onto cute overload. <laughs> it's adorable. <laughs> okay. Um, we have much less time than I was expecting, or the time has gone quicker than I thought. So at, at our reception, I hope that you will talk to our panelists about topics such as uh, coyotes, why we love them, why we fear them. Um, do you have to be taught to love or appreciate nature? I think all of our panelists would be excellent answering that question. Should Los Angeles do more to protect their wild animals, our wild animals? Um, 
But I'd like to end with the idea of what should be Los Angeles' official animal. I was uh, preparing for this program and was shocked a little bit to learn that we don't have an official animal. We have the bald eagle to represent the U.S., and the grizzly bear represents California, along with maybe a quail. Um, but I was surprised and distressed to learn when I typed in official animal Los Angeles into Google, up comes the restaurant animal. So we're not talking about... <laughs> about eating animals here tonight. Um, so I just wanted to get a quick few thoughts from the audience. What should be Los Angeles's official wild animal? Quickly, anything? What? Coyote. Coyote. Anything else? Possum. The Pacific Chorus Frog. Peregrine Falcon. Peregrine Falcon. Peregrine Falcon. I heard a lizard. What? Parrots. Oh, yeah, we have, we have colonies of wild parrots, don't we? A crow. What's that? A mockingbird. Those are everywhere. Native? Not native? Native. Does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so now I'd like to ask our panelists, if you could nominate one animal to symbolize the spirit, the culture, the history of Los Angeles and its people, what would it be? You know, I'm a big frog person, so I appreciate the Pacific, but you have a mountain lion here. What is cooler than a mountain lion? I mean, you know, that has to be the city animal. Okay, Matt, we've got mountain lion. I would have to go with the raccoon. Raccoon. Okay. Wait, what? Why? Well, the raccoon is pretty much a good survivor and is much like we are. It has little hands. They can manipulate things, and they're very good at manipulating us into giving them food. Mm -hmm. They so, train uh, us, if yeah, you Yeah, know. they pretty much. Yeah. Uh, they're very curious about us, and they have a lot of human behavioral characteristics, so I go with the raccoon. Okay. I can't wait to hear if Leela picks a mammal or an invertebrate. I'm totally picking an invertebrate. <laughs> um, harvester ants. Yep. How come? They are amazing social insects. They are very organized. They work really well as a team. They have their own kind of city, just like us here in Los Angeles. And if you mess with them, they're going to pack a good punch. They have a very, very impressive sting. Um, Justin Smith, who was a, a person who uh, scaled all these different insect stings and bites that he's got, he put them as a number four on the scale. Mm. And um, the most... Uh, the most painful one was four plus, which is a bullet ant, which is not in North America. Hmm. Um, so like a honeybee's around a, a one or a two. So mm. just to give you a sense. Okay. Yeah, but does the raccoon and the harvester ant have their own Twitter account? P22 <laughs> has his own Twitter account. So. <laughs> 60 seconds for an environmental comment. Yes. Okay. Um, something that's become a big issue for me is the Pacific Garbage Patch, which is floating trash between here and Hawaii that's twice the size of Texas. Uh, we're going to see the demise of the albatross if we don't change our ways and throwing plastic into the environment. I encourage everybody here to encourage others to recycle. The plastic bags that are used, which hopefully will go by the wayside soon, are causing a big problem for those animals. Anytime you take a cap off a bottle and throw it away separate from that container, that ends up in the ocean. The albatross picks it up as food and will feed it to their young. If you look up Midway Island on YouTube, you'll see there's a video talking about this and how the animals are being affected. Please do everything you can to recycle and protect our animals from the things that we throw out into the environment. Thank you. We have, thank you to all of you so much for all these thoughts. There's much more we could talk about, and we have time for some questions from the audience. Hi, my name is Becca Wilson. I live in Glassell Park, and I got here late, so I'm sorry if you covered all this already, but 
I've lived in Glasshill Park for about 11 years, and I've noticed a decline in the variety of birds, and I wondered if that's true generally in Los Angeles. I'm not particularly aware of a decline in birds with the exception of when West Nile virus is present, which is a disease that affects the corvids, like blue jays and crows and so forth. It's a big problem for them. If that's something that's a problem in that area, that might address the reduction in the bird numbers. Some things, if the food source is depleted in, the, in some areas, they'll move on to other areas to find that food without knowing more about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in the area of birds, but that might be something that I have people that I have in, I'm in contact with that would probably be able to answer questions about birds if you want to contact me uh, with LA Animal Services. By the way, if you need my information, it's um, email is gregory.randall at org. And the wildlife phone line is 323-225-WILD. Last four numbers are 9453. And you like to hear from people about these yes, wildlife Yes, do questions. understand that it's a small department. We're not always in that office. Get about 100 messages every two days. I have an assistant, Officer Din, who's here in the audience, if you could raise your hand. So we do our best to try and get contact back to people. So there may be delays. Uh, emails are going back delayed about three weeks right now, but I will respond to everybody. Great. Lila, did you have some thoughts? I did. Um, so Kimball Garrett, our ornithologist at the museum, has been surveying birds uh, at the museum site in Exposition Park, one of the most uh, largest parks in uh, the southern area of Los Angeles. And 30 years he's been doing this. And we have uh, almost 180 species that he's recorded. So they're not necessarily on the decline, but if there are uh, a population of house cats that are um, allowed outside in your neighborhood and or feral cats, that could be a cause for a decline in birds in that specific area. I'm interested in the decline of monarch butterflies. Um, I understand that if you plant a milkweed species that's from South America, that it won't provide the same kind of nutrients that the monarchs need if we plant our native milkweeds, and I'm wondering if this is true. We always advocate um, definitely to plant the native species. We do have some of the uh, introduced uh, non-native uh, species of milkweed in our garden at the museum, and the monarchs are eating it up. No, like they really um, like it. But the planting the native, you're going to attract uh, other native species that uh, it can rely on too. So I haven't necessarily seen that happening in um, our gardens. And, um, you know, the director of the gardens is Carol Bornstein, and she's a native plant guru. And so she's definitely advocating for as much native as possible. But we live in Los Angeles, and it's all about altered nature. And we, we definitely, when we were planting the garden, we weren't uh, specifically trying to say we're only going to plant natives because it's kind of, you know, at certain points it's hard to tell what was exactly here. Um, and also that we wanted to give a representation of what people could see in their own backyards. Um, and, and so we're really wanting to talk about how it is affected by humans uh, in both positive and negative ways. Beth, do you know about monarchs? Did yeah, you, you know, there's actually been, I just saw some research uh, being done on, it wasn't so much the milkweed, although a good resource, the Theodore Payne Native Plant, um, says, yeah, uh, <laughs> they can clue you in. And, and they do advocate for the native milkweed for the monarchs. Um, but, you know, also where monarchs sort of roost, for lack of a better word, um, there's some research being done on eucalyptus, you know, which is not native. And do monarchs prefer, which they will actually, you know, roost in, 
Um, do they prefer that or are they just using it to be opportunistic because nothing else is there? So, and, you know, there was some that the, the, the native trees actually were more attractive to them and that they were only using it. But there's a lot of research going into this topic right now because obviously monarchs are declining. And again, in some respects, you know, the non-natives may work, but it, it may be the more we can do to promote the native species will help ultimately uh, that to boost their populations again. It's a, it's a good question. I don't know that the, there's a definitive answer yet. Hi, I'm Christian Montiel. Um, why is there only one mountain lion in Los Angeles? <laughs> Dan Cooper, are you here? <laughs> um, you know, our mountain lion population has declined over the many years. Uh, they are protected now. Uh, however, we just don't have a lot of mountain lions. The reason why may have a lot to do with the things they're coming into contact with, such as a number of them inhibited by cars. Uh, some mountain lions get secondary poisoning from eating other animals that have been poisoned. Uh, other than that, it's really hard to pinpoint that, the reason why we've seen such a decline. They were hunted quite a bit in the past. That is no longer allowed. But my experience has been the decline of mountain lions has a lot to do with being crossing our freeways and roads. A lot of them have been injured by vehicles. Greg, do we really only have one in Los Angeles? Well, one in the Griffith Park. Okay. Um, in my experience, in we had a, well, we did have a mountain line that was by the 405 freeway, um, unfortunately also taken out by mm -hmm. crossing the freeway. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had had a number of sightings on that animal. We had one mountain line for five years that traveled from the 405 freeway to the Hollywood Bowl and back that I only knew about because people called on such a regular basis because their backyard... It would be within one week of the same month of every year that it would pass through. It was very habitual. And there was never any problem with it taking any pets. It usually deer was the prime food item for it, mule, mule deer. Um, but as far as a lot of mountain lions, no. It was one mountain lion being seen by many people. I um, was recently up in the Canadian Rockies driving the Trans-Canada Highway, and they had these really interesting overpasses that were covered with fauna that were built for the wildlife to complete their migrations or their normal circuits that they take. Is, is there any way something like that would happen we in Los Angeles? We have one at Harbor Boulevard um, underpass, yeah. Um, Do you La all know about this? Yeah, La Habra Heights, the so city of La Habra. Yeah, it's an underpass. Right. Uh, so, But yes, it would be great. I mean, P-22 had to cross both the 405 and the 101 to get there. I don't even escape from the 405 mm -hmm. without injury. So, In a car. Um, so yeah, as, as Greg said, how many more tried and didn't make it? So I think, you know, the highways are probably the limiting factor. My guess is we probably do have more here, but... Um, we don't see them. I mean, P-22, nobody's seen him except for the camera and the researchers. So, um, so hopefully we'll get more. My name is Linda Krause, and I live in South Pasadena, which is just beginning to the climb up toward the foothills of the mountains there. And um, I wanted to say that I just want to congratulate this wonderful panel. It's been so interesting and stimulating. Uh, I wish there was a place we could get, see written down all of the references to the citizen um, pictures and so forth and all these references you've made. I just want to also reiterate and ask why I noticed, I've been there for 21 years, and I noticed that the bird population has totally changed. We don't have any more owls, and there used to be wonderful owls at night, and songbirds in the middle of the night are gone, but we do have loads of um, green parrots have come in. And the other uh, thing is, is there anything, and I guess this is more to Greg, um, I bought a little red slider in Chinatown, and I'm just appalled at the sale of these little 
um, creatures and they are treated so poorly, is there something we could be done that could be done in Los Angeles to make not the sale but the buying, the purchase of these red sliders illegal, so we could stop this marketing of, of um, animals and, and poor treatment? Actually, this has been addressed um, many years ago after I was involved in a bust with LAPD where there was 5,000 sliders taken from a building in the garment district. I had recommended that because the people who are doing the selling get out of jail and go right back to doing it because they're making money hand over fist, it doesn't matter to them if they get arrested, it's a weak law. I recommended that we treat the purchaser and signs are up down there now posted that if you are caught purchasing the animal, it is a crime. It is actually against the law to purchase those animals from the, and it's also against the law to sell them. Animals being sold as novelties is against the law. Um, getting, it's, only, it's only this year that that went out, so it's gonna take some time for that to really start having an impact uh, to get people to stop doing that. What people don't realize is that the animals that they're purchasing down there are often the wrong size. There's salmonella bacteria that can affect children. Uh, sometimes they have been caught selling baby bunnies that are too young to go out, and as even some people have, I don't know how they've done it, but gotten hold of tree squirrels and sold them in parakeets. And they have these carts, and what will happen when we approach is they'll abandon their cart and run away, just leaving us the animals to impound, and they'll just go and do it again. What we're trying to do is get the gentleman who distributes it uh, to these people. Um, but it's a big money-making industry, and we think only through citing the people who are purchasing will we get it to stop. So that is something that is, is going on right now. So thank you for bringing that up, by the way. Do you have any updates on Meatball the Bear? I do. <laughs> um, do tell. Yeah. <laughs> a meatball, how many of you have seen that video of the guy texting uh, coming out of the, his driveway in Meatball? I, uh, to me, that's just a great urban. I mean, who expects to see a bear, right? So Meatball, I don't know if you've heard, is now going to be the official um, main float in the Rose Bowl Parade in Glendale. Uh, so, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and but what's great about this is, you know, we were talking about this before. Glendale, I mean, the, the meatball or the Glendale bear is a perfect example of a bad story turned good. So, here's a bear that, a very smart and very cute bear who figured out how to get Costco meatballs and how to, you know, break into houses and swim in swimming pools. And, um, you know, we loved watching his antics, but it was also his downfall, right? I mean, they tried to relocate him, which, as Greg says, usually does not work. And an interesting side note, they just came out with some research that he may have learned this behavior in his, his genes because where I live, Yosemite, we had problem bears for a long time. They were being shipped down here. <laughs> so <laughs> this might have been instinctual. Um, <laughs> but he... Uh, but the Glendale didn't want him killed, which is usually what happens. So they raised money, and he's now in a facility in Alpine, which they're trying to actually raise more money for a, a, a larger pen for him. And the float is not just going to be celebrating that he broke into, um, you know, uh, Costco meatballs, although he is, I think he's going to be coming out of a trash uh, can in the float. <laughs> but it's, it's, the float is about how to live with wildlife. So to me, this is a great success story, and, uh, and that's the update on Meatball, who, if you haven't seen some of those photos, is, is quite funny. <laughs> I wonder if the panel is aware of any good urban myths about urban animals in L.A. In other words, what's an animal that someone might tell me is here that just isn't here? I kind of have an answer for that, but it, I don't know if it's going to please you. But um, piranhas, right? So they get... <laughs> sold in pet stores, kind of like the red-eared sliders, but not as frequently as the red-eared sliders. 
And those piranhas, we have some in our collection at the museum that were found in golf course ponds. They can't survive throughout the winter, so it's not like we're going to have a population of piranha living in uh, a pond um, or in the fountain like back there. Um, so that would be like a good apocryphal story that, you know, we've got piranha who live here year round. That's not going to happen. The fish cannot survive throughout the winters, but they have been found in golf course ponds. Greg, don't you have a piranha story? My piranha are limited to uh, busting uh, basic uh, drug dealers who keep them in a fish tank to try and threaten people who don't pay up their debt. <laughs> they usually keep the money in the bottom of the fish tank with a skeletal hand and if they don't, people don't pay up, they threaten to put their hand in with the piranha. It's usually we end up with the piranha as a result of that. Plot point. Yes. <laughs> that could next be the time. next Sharknado movie. It could be, per, you know, the <laughs> piranha-nado. Are non-native animals as important as native animals? Are non-native animals as important as native animals? You know, that's a good question, Lily. And I think, you know... All animals are important, but as, as we discussed before, what you find when non-natives come in sometimes, not all the time, is that they can actually disrupt and make the native species go extinct. So it's hard to give a, an answer sort of that catches all situations, but for the most part, like Greg said, you usually give a preference to the native animals that are here. That, that tends to be the case. Uh, the native animal is, and just like in other areas where some of our animals are not supposed to be there, I'll give you an example. Japan and Germany now have tremendous amounts of raccoons because they imported them. Japan imported them because of a cartoon of a little girl that had a pet raccoon, and now the raccoons are out of control there. It's a non-native animal, and now they're doing everything they can to ext extirpate the raccoon. Um, here with the red fox, they will kill our native gray fox. And that can be a problem. The native gray fox is supposed to be there. So usually the native animal, I don't, I don't think one animal is more important than the other, but it, the native animal is always going to win out over the non-native. Although we do have native versus native animal issues, you know, that can become a problem as well. And then, then there's the issue of uh, brand new species being discovered, and we don't know where they're originally from. Mm. Um, Dr. Brian Brown, our entomologist, um, has put up traps. He put up a trap in a Brentwood backyard and was looking at the forehead flies, the humpback flies, very tiny flies that he's like a world-leading expert on. And he pulled out three flies of significance from this one week's worth of trapping. The first fly he pulled out was a brand new species, never before been discovered by science. The second fly he pulled out was an introduced species um, from Europe, never before been found in North America. And the third species he found um, was also non, uh, never before been found in North America and only been found on both coasts of Africa. And so it's, it's really interesting that you're, we're looking at these things and, and some things we just don't know where they originally were from. And so the, the issue of native and non-native is, is, is kind of like, it's very subjective. Hi, David Bloom. First of all, can, can we get a better name for the mountain lion than P-22? I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, Glendale's got meatball, right? So that's a fine name. Surely we can, we've got all these screenwriters, we've got all these, you know, artists running around. Just, just a better name. That's all I'm saying. And we might actually have a city animal then. But second of all, you, you mentioned um, what to do when you see a coyote to sort of scare them off or keep them away. But you didn't talk about a bear, and we do have bears. What would you suggest we do? It's different for species of bears, too, right? Well, the, ba the bear that we're going to see here is the black bear. And they're really not a threat. I mean, they're really not interested in attacking people. It's, it's not something we see commonly happen. 
and you don't have to do much most of the time to scare them. Even just raising up your arms, a lot of times they'll start running away. I've been in Yosemite when the bears would come around the campsites where sometimes people didn't pack up their food and banging two pans together sent them running the other direction. So that's a very simple way of dealing with Not that you're walking around with a p- some pans in your hands when you're outside, <laughs> but you could certainly clap your hands and wave your arms and yell, get out of here. As long as it's a stern, loud voice, you could yell, happy birthday. It doesn't matter. <laughs> as long as you're just yelling in a stern, loud voice, get out of here, and just make yourself look very large and menacing. Really, the bear incidents are usually as a result of some poorly packed food, and it's an accident. A lot of people don't realize that when we eat food and go camping, we don't, if we don't wash up, the smell of that food is still on your skin. They may not be interested in you. It's the smell of the food on you. The odors of the food enter into your clothing. If you eat cooked food, that odor is in your clothes. The bear not might be interested in you, but what you're wearing has that smell. So we have to keep in mind some of the things we do that will attract animals to us. But making yourself the bigger person, and this isn't always going to work if you've got a bear that's protecting young. Just like we would be protective of our young, you want to keep a distance. Keep your eye on the animal and move back to a safe distance. There is a little tiny book, very small, $4.99 called Don't Get Eaten. You can order that online from Amazon. It has every single way to scare different types of animals. And Beth, animal celebrities and naming them. Yeah, you know, I'm all, I know it's, uh, I think we should name them. I know, you know, as when I had my biology undergrad, um, you're not supposed to name them, and I'm all for it. Meatball, the celebrity, um, the, you know, it, it's just, you can't go wrong. But, yeah, the mountain lion, I was actually calling him Jimmy because, um, you know, he's right there in James Dean, uh, you know, where James Dean Memorial is. So I think Jimmy would be a good one. But should we, we should, go for Jimmy We Dean? should tonight, uh, whoever gets the best name, I'll blog about it tomorrow. Well, we, we actually observed the first pictures. I went with um, the team to look at uh, the cameras, and it was right across from the Hollywood Bowl up by that big cross, and I was suggesting we just call him Hollywood. <laughs> we, we may have consensus. <laughs> Thank you so much.